Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Bill Newby. Bill spent his professional life as a high school teacher and administrator, and then later a college lecturer and advisor. He considers himself an everyday writer, using poetry to record and explore moments of celebration, complaint, concern, and comedy. He has helped design and edit several anthologies and has self-published two poetry collections, Sea Chests or a Carry-On and Passing Through. In his review of Passing Through, author and former Chautauqua director Phil Terman wrote that it delights, surprises, teaches, and sings poems with knowledge and wisdom. His work has appeared in numerous journals, including Whiskey Island, Blue Mountain Review, Panoplyzine, and Penumbra. He was a 2018 Pushcart Poetry Prize nominee and online featured reader for the Carolina Poets. With a mix of Southern charm and Northern urgency, Bill's writing speaks for us all. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to, to join you for Poetry Spotlight. I I'm really feel honored. Would you like to start us with the poem? Sure, I'd love to start us with a poem. So among the many things that I write about, one of them, of course, is marriage. And um, so this is a poem that will speak to many people who have similar experiences to me. This is called Cardinal Rules. When young, I thought I had learned all the cardinal rules. Open the door. Help her remove her coat. Pull out her chair. Walk in the curbside. Pay the check. Then, when I pledged a fraternity, they taught us more. How to receive and pass dishes. Which silverware was for what course. When to unfold and replace a napkin. I even tried to learn the art of romantic verse and delivered a few syrupy lines in the heat of attraction. But much later, I must have misplaced my invitation to the next series of do's and don'ts, and I'm still having trouble making them second nature. Put the toilet seat down. Roll over when snoring. Keep lights low and talk softly in the morning. <laughs> never, never, never spy the scales readout. Don't question memories in public. Forgetting these new imperatives can be costly. The penalty box is open. <laughs> I love those. I, not, not not questioning memories in public is, is a good one. That's how that's how you start something in the middle of like a Walmart aisle or something, you know. That's right. <laughs> we'll go there. <laughs> are those general rules for marriage? Like, have you? <laughs> are they survival rules? <laughs> I think they're survival rules for some marriages, and I think that some of them apply to obviously roll over when snoring. That deals with us. That those of us who are older. <laughs> But there are things like that. I mean, I'm sure in every marriage, they may be slightly different from mine, but I would recommend knowing mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All right, so you were a career English and, and writing teacher, and you worked at Shaker Heights High before moving to Cleveland State University. Um, and, and I'm curious, how did your experience as an instructor shape your work? Do you think that teaching formalizes the creative process or informs it to a degree? Well, I think, I guess I would say that obviously in teaching, you're trying to deal with an audience and therefore you have to have a feel about who your audience is in order to communicate something that they'll care about. And uh, I don't pretend to know the universal poetry audience by any means, but, but um you know, I, I would say that my teaching in many ways informs my writing because I try to, first of all, I try to make my teaching and my writing invitational. I don't want people to encounter one of my poems and in the first three lines to say, no, uh -uh. <laughs> forget this, or feel that, you know, like it's too intimidating to read and so forth. Uh, I mean, I'm very happy that, that, um, some of my friends have said that one of the things they enjoy about my poetry is they can understand it and, and it's accessible and they can enter the poem. So that's part of what 
I learned as a teacher is to learn how to make things accessible. Um, I want I want people when they first read one of my poems to feel like they're walking through a wide open front door that's very inviting. And um, I think actually that as an English teacher, I, I sort of apologize because I think that in some respects, English teachers have done a disservice to those of us who are writing because they've made poetry seem impossible to appreciate. You know, like if you don't have a guide next to you, you won't get it. Yeah. Um, when I was a um, high school English teacher, Jeremy, one of the things I did with my students was they do, did a Friday poem for the road because poetry is safer than alcohol. <laughs> so every Friday, I would say, now we're going to have another poem for the road because poetry is safer than alcohol. This was the last five minutes of every Friday class, and we would do a poem. And like the very first poem, that I would always give my students is the next, I think it's five word poem. I'll see if you get it. It's very short. Juliet was wrong. Parting sucks. <laughs> and, and how do students respond to that? Getting, students, that's very funny, by the way. But <laughs> I'm glad. I told, I told my students before I said that poem, if you get it, enjoy it. If you don't, find somebody that's smiling. <laughs> and so, but I think students understood that poetry can be a part of their lives. And one of the things you need to understand about working with high school students, according to Eric Erickson, he talks about the eight stages of life. Mm -hmm. And high school students are at the stage where they're experimenting with their identity. This is where you try different clothes, you try different friends, you try different hairstyles, you experiment with your, with your signature. <laughs> and eventually you choose these kinds of friends, those kinds of clothes, this signature. And I let them understand that literature is a way to explore our options. Okay, that's neat. And, and yeah, I, I, that, so what you had said about them finding poetry accessible really resonates because, so I've been doing this uh, fellowship, it's a summer fellowship, and I, I meet with one poet and one playwright, and this is the second year we're doing it, so sample size is very small, but I've noticed the playwrights are willing to jump right in and start working, whereas the, the poets have a lot of hesitation. They've taken creative writing. Some of them have taken a poetry writing class or, or they've been a part of a workshop before. Um, this is my uh, last year. I did two poets and this year I have one. Um, but they always feel like they're missing something and they want to start with the basics that first week where the playwrights are like, yeah, I got this. And they're, they're ready to hit the ground running and start writing some scenes. Hmm. And you know, I, in, or if you do workshops with like middle schoolers or high schoolers, they, they'll say, I didn't know I could write a poem or that it was this easy. You know, you give them some oh, crap sure. techniques and you, you show it to them or, or you've, you've been to my poetry workshop and, and people come in the hesitant saying, oh, I don't write poetry. I don't think I can. And then, you know, they come for a couple of months, have some fun. And then the third month they come back, they've got a poem in their hands. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You open the door, you give them the confidence to try. And uh, you applaud what, what comes. Exactly. So my question to you is, do you ever have a student that like triggered that light bulb where they're, they're like, oh my God, I can do this. Or, you know, something where they had been shown classical poems their whole life. And then you, then you show them this accessible work. Did, did you, did you ever have breakthroughs like that with, with your high school students? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't want to pretend that I have breakthroughs per se, but um but I saw different people grow as, as writers. I mean, sometimes it's poetry, sometimes it's other things. Um, growing as a reader, growing as a think thinker, growing as a, just an, a young adult. I mean, it's, it's all very much tied together. It's a bundle. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, had, I had a very, very, very fortunate career. I was very lucky to be in a school that, where I felt I fit. Uh, I was able to um, expand my career in a variety of ways. I did different things 
essentially to create a community in the classroom. And I know that this is not uh, a um, spotlight on teaching, but I will share something that I did as a teacher. And that is, and this is just one of a few events, that is the very last day of school, uh, instead of reviewing for the exam, because it was my opinion, if you don't know it now, you're not going to know it in a day. You know, you already got whatever you need for the exam. The last day of class, I staged a funeral for every class. And that was to formalize the opportunity to say goodbye and allow them a voice to say goodbye in all the different ways one might want to say goodbye, like something you learned, something you regretted, something that you, you know, are going to remember, you know, a favorite moment. And I let everybody talk as a way of saying goodbye. It was amazing. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And how, how did they receive that? That's a poetic experience that, that that's applying meaning to, to, because I don't remember the last day of any of my class. I mean, that's not true. I, I remember the last day of very few of my classes. And I think the ones that I remember the best are the ones where there was a sign off of sorts, or at least the classes I, I cared deeply about. Yeah, the last day of class is usually a non-event. It's usually a a party. <laughs> it's like eating pizza or something like that. And, you know, moving on to the next class. And um, in my class, when they left that class, they left with black crepe paper pinned to their shirt. <laughs> and, and memory, I hope, of what different people said, and especially what they said during the funeral. That's neat. Okay. Did, did, and, and did, did kids rise to the occasion? Did they appreciate that? Uh, I did that over a period of roughly 10 years. And uh, I, again, without going into all the details, I arranged it so everybody had an opportunity to speak at their own readiness. And I had one student over 10 years who did not stand up and talk. Everybody else on their own, when they were ready, left their seat, walked to the front of the room, looked at their classmates and said whatever they had to say. <laughs> and it was, it was a mix of tears and laughter and memory and statement. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. That's awesome. Did, did, uh, did a student ever be like, yeah, screw you, Frank. I'm never going to see you again. The more interesting response was, you remember when I told you I didn't like X? I was just lying, just being difficult. But he did like X. <laughs> so you won them over. That's excellent. <laughs> you got him in the end. <laughs> well, you also, uh, I know you taught, you know, that was your career, but you also taught uh, or ran a great poems course at Hilton Head Island. And you did a, a reading series at the library there. Right. So how, how was the community there? Was it was it different? And, and what did you learn while running those programs? Oh, it was great. Um, the Great Poems course is a course for seniors. Um, and, that, you know, Hilton Head Island has a huge retirement community. And uh, by and large, these are capable, thoughtful uh, people with, um, you know, successful careers behind them and uh, large families and so forth. So they were a delight to work with. Um, I did the, um, the Great Poems course um, just to um, expose people to a variety of poems over four weeks. We would meet um, for four Wednesdays. And the reading course that you're talking about the, at the library, that was something called Kickstart Poetry. And uh, I initiated it um, roughly eight, nine years ago, and it ran for about seven years. And then my wife and I moved back to Northern Ohio. Um, and that was a lot of fun. That was a, an attempt to have a public reading in a library where people were invited, of course, obviously to hear the reading. And the idea was to celebrate uh, the beginning of National Poetry Month. And uh, over the point, over the time that I did it, I learned that um, I learned a whole variety of things, but among them was to advertise, advertise, advertise. That's one. 
Secondly, make sure that you invite your friends and relatives, neighbors, and everybody else. The third one was to um, work collaboratively with a local literary organization. The Pat Conway Literary Center is near uh, Hilton Head Island, and uh, they co-sponsored, the, co-sponsored this event. Mm. And, um, and I tried to put together a lineup as much as possible of new voices, but also standards. And so we would typically have uh, two rounds of reading. Everybody had five minutes once, uh, two times. And um, I would try to vary the speakers from young to old, high school students to 80 years old, men and women, new and old. And uh, our typical audience was 60 plus students, 60 plus in the audience, not students, attendees. Sure. All right. Um, and, and what did you what did you learn while working on that? What did I learn? Yeah. Well, you have to do a lot of work in the background to make things work in the front ground. <laughs> oh, that's that's true. <laughs> that's one hundred percent true. <laughs> and and why why poetry? Because you have an interest in other genres. Something I want to get well, to. Well, yeah, but primarily I'm, I primarily write poetry. Yeah, and. And so for me, it's, it was a way to focus on what I've, you know, how I've come to do most of my writing. And um, there are people on the island who write poetry. I mean, it's very simple, you know, invite them and come and share your stuff. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because you, you do write, you do write fiction. You have the short story called Food Court. Yep. And. It starts with a guy checking out three women at a mall and yeah. he's, he's sitting there and it's a little voyeuristic, you know, he's, he's yeah. sitting there, he's analyzing them and he's watching one woman in particular and he knows her routine and he knows he's noting mm-hmm. how she's dressing and all that. And then he, he goes up and asks her out and then right. we, we speed forward to yeah. the day of his death and the it's, day of his death. That's right. The day, the day, the day of my daughter's wedding. No, the, the day of his death. And um, <laughs> I'm curious because it's it's a sweet poem because it, it starts reflecting back on the life he had with this woman that he asked out years and years yeah, ago. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious, where did the story come from? And what inspired the comparisons of the two points in time? Well, the story came from the fact of being in a food court and poets (laughs) poets uh are very sensitive i think as a group to the various multiple meanings of words and so i found myself observing a food court and i realized court courtship and i then started to write a story about a young man who's looking at this young woman, teenage years, high school years, who is very attractive and he's always wanted to approach. Yeah. And he's been intimidated, but he wants to approach her. And that day happens where she comes and her friends are not there and she's alone. And he walks over, he approaches her, says hi. They have a little chat and he asks her if she'd like to have a free ice cream cone because he has a coupon that gives him two ice cream cones. So one that'll pay for and one that's free. And she says, okay. And he asks her, what's her favorite flavor? And he goes and he gets the ice cream cone in her favorite flavor as his first act of courtship. They marry. And many, many, many years later, it's a bookend story. You have the first and the last in one story. Yeah. And what happens is, without going into all details, is his wife shows up at his bedside with his daughter the day and hour of his death. And they bring her favorite ice cream flavor to enjoy together as a family. So it just... And what's interesting, actually, Jeremy, about that story, which is true of every poem, is that it starts with a seed 
and then it grows. I knew that food court, the idea of courtship was something I wanted to deal with, but then I had to create the food court, the routine, the motivation, the meeting, and, you know, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. I had no idea that it would end in a hospital. Sure. And you often don't know where any poem is going to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and I wasn't expecting it either because I, <laughs> all of a sudden, well, in, in my first, I, I obviously I took in the detail that it was, uh, uh, we're in a, we're in a hospital now and, uh, <laughs> But I was I was struck by how sudden the tonal shift was because it was suddenly very sad and very sweet. It was it went from this like it was also sweet, but it was you know it had that voyeuristic aspect, and it was like ah here's like a young man like out you know trying to you know pick up a girl and and, and go on. But then then it just it switches suddenly to here's the end of life. We're watching someone fade away. You know it, it's That's it's right. It's none of it's none of the meat. It's just the buns on the bread. But it was still so interesting. <laughs> yeah, but there's a different tone between the first day and the last day. Of course, yeah, yeah. And I like that at the end they're sharing the ice cream together. the The mother and the daughter. The mother and the daughter. Yeah, they're carrying because, and you can picture in between, there were anniversaries where their ice cream would be shared. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's not, it's not, the they shared. It's not <laughs> only the first and last day. If you don't do it in between, it'll all be forgotten. Mm-hmm. But this is something that became, oh, yeah, this is the flavor your dad got for me on the first day we met. <laughs> yeah, it's like the song they shared or whatever. That's you know, right. it's, 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 it implies a trajectory. You can read between the lines. Some ritual. <laughs> yes. So, and... and it's a good, it's a great, it's a great short story because, you know, after reading a lot of your work, um, it's, it's so consistent with the other type of stuff you do. Mm-hmm. It's, you have, you, 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 as a writer, you, you try to find meaning and, and you make connections between really simple things. And this is just an ice cream flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to more, to more about that side of your aesthetic? Of simple things? Of simple things. Well, yeah, I can. I mean, I think our life is is largely made up of simple things. And I think that that one of the things that that we can do in life is pay attention to what those simple things are. Uh, I mean, I've written a poem, for example, about emptying the dishwasher first thing in the morning. And, and I think part of, this, part of this comes from the fact that one of my favorite poets is Ted Kuzer. Um, and he has a marvelous way of focusing on simple things. Last night, I, I opened a volume of his work and I read a poem called Dishwater. And it's only a poem. It's a very simple poem about his mother stepping to the back porch and throwing the dishwater out. (laughs) And in the process, he gives us a stop frame of the dishwater in the air, in an arc in the air. And then he stops it and describes it as if it's something that's fixed right there. What's below, what's above, and what his color is. And... um, Another, another example, if you don't mind, an example of what I'm talking about is his poem called Peeling a Potato. Please go ahead and read it. Peeling I would like to hear a it. Potato. Ted Kuzer. Pebble Casals should see me now. Bowing this fat little cello, peeling off long white cords. I'm not famous like Pablo, not yet. The amphitheater of the kitchen sink is nearly empty. As the notes reel out, I hear only the hesitant clapping of a few moist hands. I think those are his hands. (laughs) (laughs) I'm playing the solo variations of J.S. Bach. Wonderfully, I sweep with my peeler. See me lean into the work 
tight-lipped, the light in my hair, inspiration trickles over my handsome old hands. I love that. I love that, that he can take something like that, something that most people just ignore, that pay, they pay no attention to. It's just some daily routine that otherwise just escapes attention. And he can put it up on a pedestal and write a poem about it. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I try to I try to I try to pay attention to stuff like that myself. And I'm nowhere near as good as he is, but I keep trying. I I think so. Are you are you a stop and smell the roses kind of guy? Like, do you notice these things on a regular basis? And you're like, oh man, this is that 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 lawn sprinkler kicked on and i i'm just seeing the i'm seeing the rainbows and all that or is it more like in a, a writing aesthetic where you sit down and that's just who you are when you write well that's part of it i mean it, i mean different things happen and you know i have a lot of friends who are poets and every now and then they'll say you know do you have a writing prompt <laughs> <laughs> or here's a good writing prompt or whatever Come on, what's the ultimate writing prompt? Life, the world, daily experience. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. A lot of my friends, and I don't pretend that that, that they're really that this is true. <laughs> uh, but they'll say to me, "Bill, you notice a lot of things I don't notice." That's one thing they'll say, which I think is a compliment. Because it means in reading or hearing one of my poems, it reminds them of something they might otherwise ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of kind, I guess. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I like looking at small things and stuff happens. And then I try to figure, well, what, what is this like? I mean, how do you capture this? What is it, you know, what does it mean? What, what role does it play in my life? Mm-hmm. And part of emptying the dishwasher, by the way, early in the morning is doing it quietly so as not to wake my wife. Ah, yeah. Another cardinal rule. <laughs> yeah, one of the cardinal rules. And, and so, it's, so it's an act of love. It's not just an act of, you know, where are the plates? It's also an act of love. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. And and you do have, I mean, really, your 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 poetry collections are filled with these moments and they're they're beautiful moments. And um, you know, sometimes you capture place too, but there was there's one that is recurring that comes up a lot and it's the golf course and a golf course. the golf course you even you even have this other poem it's it's not about a golf course but it ends um it, it's about a storm there's a storm coming and the, the final image of the poem is golf carts retreating <laughs> like going oh, yeah, out, right. back up to the clubhouse and that that one really stuck with me um but the golf course you, you use it as a recurring backdrop and the the, the 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 golf poems they have a mix of like ritual and serenity and they, they talk about aging um, whether it's about like the body's capabilities or you have another one where um, there's a, there's a friend, a lost friend that you guys bring with you while you're yeah. on, on outings and they're, they're complex and they offer a nice back and forth between the, the reader and the speaker. So is, is the golf course a, a place of sanctuary for you? Do you, do you have a lot of time to think on the golf course? I, I had to ask about this specifically. <laughs> if I have a lot of time to think on the golf course. No, on the golf course, actually, I'm usually trying to find peace <laughs> and balance at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> My, unfortunately, I'm at the age where, <laughs> where I'm trying to diminish the rise in my handicap. It's going up. I just don't <laughs> want to go up too much. <laughs> So, so I wrote this poem, Jeremy, about the golf course. Okay. And this is called the Hole-in-One Club. And I use it to open my book, Passing Through. You have to remember that I was published this book when I was in Hilton Head and a lot of golfers in Hilton Head. So okay. 
I want them to feel comfortable. The hole in one glove. Okay. All right. I'm still waiting for my magic shot. Every other week, someone else's name graces the pro shop's door. And we're invited to get our free drink over the next two weeks. A chance to join the celebration and schmooze with the current star who's been given license to strut and gloat. Not me. (laughs) Joy comes to some of us in more modest attire, like finding the fairway or landing near the green. So we practice and practice, put another and another ball on the ground or tee while muttering mantras like stay in the shot. And swing by swing, we try to chisel a groove into our hands and arms, torso and thighs, a groove we hope to easily revisit, like the way our fingers tie a shoelace or our hands draw a razor across our neck. For many of us, our bodies are forgetful. And like traveling without directions, we amble from stop sign to stop sign, making stab after stab, hoping for the best. So in those rare moments when anyone, anyone hits from the tee box and drops that two-inch ball into that four-inch hole, it feels as miraculous as water changing into wine, or at least a beer or mixed drink at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) I I can attest to somebody that doesn't golf very often. uh, Just finding the fairway is often my goal. (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's just another, you know, it's another way of spending time and being with friends and having, you know, you celebrate the good moments, you mourn the bad, and you know, it's life. It's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, you had mentioned that this, this starts your book. And, and one of the things I noticed about your collections is uh, mm-hmm. both of them are organized into sections mm-hmm. and they're almost like chapbook like mm-hmm. length divisions you know you've got you know four or five of them per collection and each one contains maybe 20 pages of poetry um where did that structure come from well frankly what happened was that um when i lived in hilton head uh, i joined a group called the island writers network and this was about roughly and it varied over time 60 to 80 writers and this is a wide variety of writers, some poets, some fiction, some nonfiction, some that dealt with, uh, you know, humor, comedy, um, some that were sci-fi writers, some were historical writers. I mean, it was a, it was a very, very, very group of writers. And um, during the first couple of years that I was there uh, and learned about these writers, they decided to publish an anthology. It was maybe the fourth anthology that they had published over their their existence. Mm -hmm. And um, I volunteered um, to be one of the editors and eventually I volunteered to be a designer. And that was where I was introduced to their, their typical structure, which was a structure that was divided a lot of all this different work into something like eight units. Now, these are not eight tightly knit units, but like a section, a section, a section. And they would usually be preceded by a photograph. They usually would have some title. They might might have some kind of thematic, um, shared thematic elements. So when I decided to do books myself, self-publish, I already had the experience of putting together a book. And I thought that there were, there are certain themes that I tend to write about. There's a whole variety of them. I'm not going to read the whole list, but I already shared marriage, aging. We've talked about sports. Golf is one of the sports. Uh, I try not very successfully to write about politics a little bit, Uh, travel. There's a lot of other things that I write about. And so, so to the extent that, um, in structuring a book, I can gather some of the sim- some of their loosely themed, commonly themed 
poems together, I feel that that's a unit that people can maybe share. And so some of them are very, very loose and some of them are really pretty tight. So I have like in one of the books, I have a, a whole section on touring. And it begins with the first day of going on a big trip and the last day of coming home and all these events in between. Sure. And some of it's just, you know, enjoying the beauty and some of it's commenting on the culture. I mean, it's different things that deal with touring. And then, so I just think it's, it's a way of giving a book some additional structure beyond here's the first page and here's the last page. Sure. Okay. And, and yeah, you're, you're, you do write a whole bunch of different themes and where does the consideration of theme fall in the writing and or editing process for you? Like, do you start off saying, man, I really want to write about, you know, sports today, or I want to write about, you know, like, I'm sure that's, that's, it's not that simplistic. And I'm sure it's more because you had talked earlier about how you have this this kernel of an idea and it it, it, yeah. it sprouts outward. So so where where does theme fall? And um, do you organize it like that in your head when you look at a finished poem? No, actually, I, I don't think about theme. I think that there's, I just believe that in everybody's life, there are themes. You know, uh, I, I think, I assume that in your life, being a father is a theme. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and in my life, being an old man is a theme now you know, and so, so, so literature uh, grows out of different themes of importance. I mean, I've been reading Romeo and Juliet recently, because I'm in a Shakespeare group, and uh, in Romeo and Juliet, there's this, there's this theme about the difference between youth and old age, and the difference between hate, the groups that are fighting, of course, between hatred and love, and so I don't think about theme, I just write about whatever's there to write about. It just so happens that it falls into different categories, you know, like file folders or whatever. Sure. And, um, you know, so, so for example, I wrote a poem, I'm not going to read it, but I wrote a poem about basketball. And in my life, you know, basketball has played many different, there's been many different portions or chapters of, of basketball life. And, all I did is I just tried to capture the different chapters of that basketball life. You know, everything from the basket on the Christmas tree to the basket in the high school gymnasium and every step in between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have, you have uh, which is interesting because I know you've, you've talked a little bit about, or at least with, in, in, in the context of golf, the limitations that you feel, you know, <laughs> like trying to fight the, the handicap but hmm. with basketball you have a short story where you have you know, these kids playing basketball and right. they're just playing horse and at the the very end of the story the kid goes to shoot he tries like one of those impossible shots you know I like the, it's a shot from the from the sidewalk <laughs> exactly yeah it's the it's the one that everybody does like the end of the driveway they're like one-handing it they're, you know right. And and it, it doesn't go it doesn't go near the hoop and he thinks maybe next year and that's maybe just another year. limitation from the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, because because that was a story of when I was so young I couldn't I didn't I couldn't reach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you, do you have some themes that are favorite uh, that you like to write about more than others? Find, some that you find are recurring all the time. Well, you know. Um, nature and weather are, are events that are taking place and changing all the time. From my desk right now, I look out a window at a tree, a street, you know, and I see the weather. And so I think, I think writing about nature or today, any day, uh, is one of the ways of getting my pen moving. Okay. Uh, it doesn't always lead to the best work. Occasionally, something I'll write feels like, eh, not bad, keep it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's some reason for holding on to it. And, and I can never know what that is when you start to write. Mm. Uh, and I think, I, I can't speak for, obviously, for any other author, but from what I've heard, I think that many of us are alike. And that something will spark our curiosity, our interest. You know, we'll hear somebody say something or 
will see something happen that for some reason has unexpected interest. Yeah, yeah. And that one little thing, you know, like watching somebody else pour wine for their lover. Okay? Yeah. Just, it's like, can I, can I write about that? Because, because really, what is writing? Writing is essentially exploring the world with words. They're word photographs. They're word pictures. They're like building an album of special moments. But unlike a photograph, unlike a camera, the moments can be inside your body, inside your head. <laughs> they can yeah. be far away. They can be years before or years to come. I mean, the opportunity for expanding a poem or exploring things is, is infinite. And you just have to begin writing and trust that the next line will lead to the next line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, <laughs> what, what is it about that? Like the, is it like a poetic goggles? Do you think, do you think that, that poets are, they train themselves or that, that maybe they have an aptitude for looking at a simple thing and saying, no, this isn't simple. I have all these interactions with it. I have an emotional relationship with my TV remote, you know, whatever it is. And, it, or, you know, is that something that we have to learn over time? Well, I, I, I think that, I think there are certain people that, um, let's say are attuned to that and it comes more naturally. But I think it's also a matter of, of uh, practicing anything. Look, playing basketball, you know, if you want to sink a, a foul shot, you practice it. <laughs> and, and the first time you make the foul shot, the very first time, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not normal, right? So the same thing's true with, I think, with any, any art. I think that, that, sure, there are people who are gifted, and do anything better than others, right? But in terms of just the normal writer, you know, you practice, you practice, you practice. The more you write, the more you, you know, have some sense. And you have, you have there's a lot of things that go on. I mean, I could go on forever, but, but you have to trust a thought. Yeah, yeah. You know, something comes, instead of fighting it, trust it there's 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 two two phases to writing one's creative and the other's critical be creative before you get critical if you allow critical to come too early you'll just stop yeah right absolutely that that's yeah that's succinct and in a good way of putting i think writing block for some people not sure. everyone of course but you yeah. know um you know i i know i asked this it's I'm double dipping here. I know I asked this in the context of Hilton Head Island, but I want to ask this in the context of your your writing, your you as a as a as a person. Why poetry? What 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 about poetry grabbed you? And what is your earliest memory of poetry? And how has that really been? Why is that the pilot? Well, I think I think for me, poetry. Um... There, I think there's a variety of reasons why poetry grabs me. In some respects, it's easier than fiction. Much easier than fiction. Because you can write a poem that has some power and has some uh, life. And it's 20 lines long. Now, you cannot write. I mean, I know there's flash fiction. But if you want to write a novel, you better set aside a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing is, is that, is that it's an easier craft to practice. I mean, I do like writing fiction, but poetry is an easier craft to practice. There's a lot of craft, though, in poetry that you don't necessarily see in fiction. I think that that... In my opinion, we've talked a lot about topic and theme. But the other thing is, is that a poem, in many respects, 
has to sing. And that has to do with training your ear and paying attention to the rhythm of a line, uh, in my opinion. And I think the more that even, even in contemporary poetry where you have a lot of blank verse, there's still a rhythm in a line. Yeah. And so I think that that's something to practice. And then there's all the different arts of, of imagery and so forth, which I think deserve practice. Um, so, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of craft that's involved and there's a lot of craft in fiction. It's, it's, just, it's just, it's another, it's another sport, right? <laughs> Essentially. <Yeah. laughs> they both have pens. It's like saying like, you know, basketball and soccer both have balls, you know, but they're still. Yeah. <laughs> they're very different. Yeah. And, you know, you asked me about my earliest memories. I mean, actually, I, I can't recite it, uh, but I remember being in grade school and being expected to memorize a poem and coming home and looking at some of the books we had around the house. And uh, I found a poem and um, it was the um, the yarn of the Nellie Bell or something like that. And it was it was about a shipwreck. And, and the chorus was, well, I am the cook and the captain bold and the mate of the Nancy brig, the bosun tight and the midship might and the crew of the captain's gig. One person, I am all these people because he ate all the others. <laughs> so you can imagine a young kid, me, fourth grade, why I would find that so entertaining. <laughs> yes. And see, that's the type of poem we should be teaching kids. I mean, we should teach them the classics too. Like there's definitely a lot to learn from them, but I think that that's the type of stuff that grabs you and pulls you in. <laughs> <laughs> there was, that was just a few lines. There's a lot more to the poem, you know, but anyhow, that's my earliest memory of a poem. And, and then I was an English major. So obviously what happened is I go to college and in high school too, you know, you're studying all this literature as literature. And then you say, well, if they can do it, can I do it? You know, you try. And so you have certain models, you know, can you write a line that rhymes? So you begin with couplets. And later you try to write four lines <laughs> with an ABAB rhyme scheme. And then you say, hey, if I did this three times and put two at the end, I got a sonnet, right? So you, you, start, you start small and you kind of add. But, but really what happens, frankly, Jeremy, is that in my life, I was busy. I didn't have time to write for the most part. I was teaching. Teaching is a hard job if you want to be serious about it. And, and I'm very, very fortunate that I retired some 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think. And, um, and I've enjoyed what, I, uh, what is called, in my opinion, an emperor's retirement. And when I taught Japanese literature, I learned that when an emperor retired, he had the opportunity to pass on his duties to others and spend his time in his garden and in the arts. Interesting. So, so I've written much, much more over the last 15 years than I wrote during the preceding years. I have poems that I wrote back in the 1970s, <laughs> but, but my output in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s is much less than the 2000s, 2010s, and 20s. Sure. Well, I, I, I hope it stays that way. <laughs> I hope you get to keep strolling the garden because I'm envious. <laughs> I understand what you got. You got young kids running around. Yeah, no. And, and that, that, that makes it challenging sometimes. Sure. Um, okay. Would you like to round us off with a, another poem? Oh, I'd love it. Um, so I thought I'd finish with one of those simple poems. And as you know, a lot of poets write about poetry. And so this is a poem called How to Hold a Pencil, <laughs> which is one of those simple things that I love to write about. How to hold a pencil. First, keep it close. Like in your car's console, in your pocket, 
or on a nightstand where you can reach it without having to search or wait. Pick it up with gratitude for the word or phrase you have in mind and curiosity about what will come. Your body should be relaxed, your posture comfortable, where you can take full breaths and let them out smooth as cream. Place your fingers on its shaft as if measuring its pulse, the way a fisherman holds a rod to feel the tug of what is hidden and guess if he's in an abundant place or needs to cast elsewhere. Let each word flow from its tip, letter by letter, syllable by syllable, as you record your inner voice, offering the next and next possibility. And as the phrases arrive, use your pencil like an oar, guiding it in and around snags and deadfalls, through shoots between boulders, over the bubbles of rushes and into and across pools of calm. When you think you may be done, pause and wait, sliding your fingers along its smooth, clean length, like gauging the weight of a favorite jewel and seeing what sparkles are left before you decide to set it down and turn the spigot off. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.